Well, hi, friends. This is Matthew Dowling, and I am your host for The Preacher Cast, a discussion of Christianity, the Church, and life in Christ. This is the November 13th, 2020 edition of The Preacher Cast, and today we'll be looking at a number of items in the news. As always, today's discussion will be rooted in the Holy Bible, the inerrant and infallible Word of God. After the news, we turn our attention to the Q&A segment of the Preacher Cast, where I answer questions submitted by listeners each week. If you would like to submit a question to the Preacher Cast to be answered by yours truly, email me at preacherquestions at gmail.com. That is preacherquestions at gmail.com. This week's questions are, first, what would you say to a Christian who rejects the inerrancy of Scripture? Secondly, How many days was Jesus in the grave? Two or three. Third, does God give people free will? And then fourth, can a saved person be lost? Again, if you would like to submit a question for the Preacher Cast, email me at preacherquestions at gmail.com. Following the Q&A, we will turn our attention to the theology segment of the Preacher Cast. This week, we will consider the question, What is the Church? Finally, I will have a book recommendation for you. This week's recommended book is by Joel Beakey and Nick Thompson, titled Pastors and Their Critics. Before we turn to the podcast, let me remind you that you can check out my blog and take advantage of the resources there, including sermons and a daily devotional published each morning. You can access my website at matthewdowling.org. That is matthewdowling.org. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Preacher Cast over at anchor.fm. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash preachercast, and you can access previous episodes of the show, including not only The Preacher Cast, but also my weekly apologetics podcast, Three Minutes to a Stronger Faith. Also, you can subscribe to The Preacher Cast on Apple iTunes or on all major podcast distributors. Okay, let's turn our attention to this week's news and analysis. Our first item in the news today is news out of India, where we're told an Indian pastor was beaten and boycotted for his Christian faith. On October 20th, Pastor Vasu Nayak and his family were attacked in their home by a mob of 60 radical Hindus in India's Karnataka state. During the attack, the pastor was told by the mob to worship a Hindu deity and to convert to Hinduism. If he refused, members of the mob threatened severe consequences, this according to reports from International Christian Concern. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Pastor Nayak refused to bow to the deity, and was then manhandled by the mob. He was dragged outside of his home, accused of attempting to destroy the deity, and beaten. The Hindus who beat him announced that his family was to be shunned by other villagers, and no one would be allowed to even buy groceries from the shop, which was owned by the Nayak family. Pastor Nayak, however, had this to say after the beating, We are not safe in the village. However, we trust in God for his protection. Jeremiah 17 verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Moving on from there to political news in the United States, Biden declares victory, but Trump says election is far from over. Last Saturday, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden declared victory in the 2020 election, a declaration that's being disputed by President Donald Trump. This according to multiple 
multiple reports, but specifically from reports by the Epic Times. Biden, age 77, said he is, quote, honored and humbled by the trust the American people have placed in me and in Vice President-elect Harris. But President Trump, the Republican incumbent vying for a second term, had this to say, quote, We all know why Joe Biden is rushing to falsely pose as the winner and why his media allies are trying so hard to help him. They don't want the truth to be exposed. The simple fact is this election is far from over. Joe Biden has not been certified as the winner of any states, let alone any of the highly contested states headed for mandatory recounts or states where our campaign has valid and legitimate legal challenges that could determine the ultimate victor. Moving on from election news to news out of the uh, church juggernaut, if we want to think about it that way, known as Hillsong in New York City. News of one of their ministers, the name Carl Lentz, who admitted last week to an extramarital affair, ending a day of speculation as to why he's been fired. Lentz acknowledged a need for rest, for rebuilding trust with his wife and children, and, quote, taking real time to work on and heal my own life and seek out the help that I need, end quote. Lentz, age 41, became a kind of darling of major media outlets for his hipster dress and tattooed covered arms. He was one of a number of pastors GQ magazine once described as hype priests who lead churches frequented by celebrities. Friends and congregants include Justin Bieber and his wife, Haley Baldwin Bieber, as well as the Jenner sisters of Keeping Up with the Kardashians fame. Let me remind you, Hebrews 13.4 says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. There are a number of scandals in the news, many of them emerging from celebrity pastors, what are called here in this story hype priests. I would warn against these kind of uh, pastorates. They oftentimes are deeply compromised in terms of doctrine. They often focus more upon the fame of the pastor rather than uh, who the pastor contends to serve, that is, Jesus Christ. I find it in my own ministry most helpful to think of John the Baptist as somebody to be emulated. Remember, it is John the Baptist who once said, I must decrease. He, that is, Jesus Christ, must increase. Moving on now from Christian celebrity news in the United States to a story from Morning Star News reporting that a Christian pastor was martyred in northern Uganda, that is in Africa, at the hands of Muslims. David Omara was beat to death by a gang of six men after conducting a radio program outlining the differences between Islam and the Christian faith. Here we see a story uh, really contending and in dissonance with the previous story about hyper-priests. Here we have a story of a faithful pastor doing the work of a minister who paid for his life. Moving on from there, we acknowledge something that's going on in the United States, the fact that the United States is in turmoil. Obviously, the president has not conceded the election. His Democrat challenger has declared victory and looks forward to the inauguration, and the balance of power in the United States Senate has yet to be determined. In addition, President Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper on Monday, replacing him immediately with Christopher Miller, the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, as acting secretary. I'm reminded, even in the congregation that I serve, that there are families that are in discord because of the national election. It is a prime time for preachers to turn their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and remind all of those under their care of their loyalty and the responsibility for bearing the burdens of one another in Christ. And speaking of dissonance within the American political scene, we mark that there has been a mixed response from Christian leaders on the election. 
In fact, responding to recent controversies relating to the presidential election, Christian leaders have taken a variety of positions. For example, Southern Baptist leader Dr. Al Mohler warned against unsubstantiated, quote, generalized charges of voter fraud, end quote. However, Dr. Mueller went on to say this, quote, every single American citizen should be unsatisfied if there is any question about the actual veracity of the voting process, end quote. At this point, Dr. Mueller added that there is no, quote unquote, credible concern of election fraud, which could be considered a matter of public record. Pastor Douglas Wilson points out that Americans have lost faith in the voting process due to big tech's quote-unquote, monopolistic chokehold and its gigantic censorship machine. Texas pastor Jack Graham tweeted this. He said, quote, He is praying that the lies and cheating will be exposed and President Trump will be fairly reelected, end quote. And Pastor Robert Jeffries said that it's too early to talk about a Biden presidency until the courts resolve the contentions. I'm reminded of the Word of God in Daniel 2, verse 44, which reminds us of Christ's kingdom being one that lasts forever. We read there, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Moving on from the news about mixed responses within Christian leadership to the election, we note that the Dow Jones has been up this week. The Dow Jones, in fact, hit record levels yesterday, up 834 points in one day. The markets corrected most losses from the COVID-inspired economic shutdown after Pfizer announced a 90% effective uh, COVID vaccine that they are getting ready to deploy. However, the ratio of total market cap to gross domestic product hit 176% yesterday. That's up from 45% in the 1980s and 90% in 2005. Jesse Felder of the Felder Report called this the, quote, picture of an extremely overvalued stock market. Moving on from volatility in the stock market to news about Hurricane Ida, which claimed 50 lives. In fact, the power of Almighty God was evident in Hurricane Ida. It swept through Guatemala and then up into Florida over last weekend. The Category 4 hurricane resulted in at least 50 deaths in Guatemala as the result of storm-induced landslide and brought up to a foot of rain in southern Florida. And speaking of natural disasters, we have news out of Turkey that a Turkish earthquake has taken 116 lives and yet resulted in many opportunities for the gospel. In fact, this is the worst earthquake so far in 2020, and the death toll from the earthquake hitting Izmir, Turkey, last week is up to 116, this according to reports from Reuters. Paul Carrington is on the ground in Izmir, and he had a first-hand report. He says, we wanted to bring you up to speed on what's been happening here on the ground since the October 30th earthquake. It came in at about 7.0 in terms of magnitude. It was the strongest earthquake here in the region since the last 104 years. Needless to say, there's a lot of damage in and around where we live. In about five to ten minutes away from our houses is a large tent city that's been set up. So there's about 1,040 tents set up in the park where families who have lost their apartments or belongings or are afraid to go back to their apartments, are now temporarily being housed. He goes on to say at the moment there are 157 buildings that have been condemned. Carrington also asked uh, that all Christians would be in prayer for the gospel to make its way into Turkey, especially during this time of national crisis. 
There's an active underground Christian missionary network in Turkey. Because of the regime that's in charge there and the predominance of the Islamic faith, they have to be very careful about spreading the gospel. We ask that our listeners would be in prayer for the Christians in Turkey. Finally, we turn from Turkey to news in America about the COVID death rate, which is going up in what some are calling a spike in COVID cases here at the end of 2020. In fact, the seven-day moving average on American COVID-19 deaths has settled to about 1,000 per day. That's still down from a total of around 2,200 or so in the month of April, and a little up from the average daily death rate of 720 in the, mark, the, in the month of October. The mainstream media reports COVID-19 new cases are up 34% over last week, three times the new case numbers in April. However, the numbers do not reflect a percent based on the numbers of tests concluded. Speaking of the news in this regard to COVID, I uh, have an opportunity often to serve in the local hospitals here. In fact, just recently I've been assigned to a COVID floor where I've been serving and have been able to watch the COVID outbreak firsthand as brave nurses and doctors and techs serve, I should also add respiratory techs, serve those who are afflicted with COVID-19. We need to continue to be in prayer for our nation and for the brave frontline workers who are doing their best to stem the tide of this viral infection. And uh, finally, in the news segment today, we need to uh, make note of two important uh, events that are happening this week. The first was the death of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who brought Judaism to a global audience. He has died. He was the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and a man who won a large audience for his ability to reconcile the particularities of Judaism with universal concerns. Uh, Many people around the world are mourning his death. He was 72 years old and had undergone treatment for several bouts with cancer, which was first diagnosed in his 30s. He was a proponent of interfaith understandings and a modern Orthodox rabbi with wide crossover appeal to other Jewish groups and to non-Jews. Many people are observing his death and mourning it around the world. And then finally, in the news segment today, we need to note that as of Tuesday, that is Tuesday, November 10th, the Supreme Court is weighing the future of the Affordable Care Act. In fact, when the Supreme Court weighs the fate of what has been often called Obamacare last Tuesday, arguments revolved around arcane points of law like severability, that is, whether the justices can surgically snip out part of the law and lead to the rest. But what's at stake has real-world consequences for just about every American, as well as the healthcare industry, which is a major source of jobs and tax revenue. Whether the Affordable Care Act stays, goes, or is significantly changed will affect the way life is lived in the United States. It's important to keep an eye on this. It's important to, uh, for Supreme Court watchers to see the way the court functions now, that the latest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, has been added to the bench. And it's an important uh, day and case for those who are constitutional watchers, uh, many who contend that the ACA is un- unconstitutional at its core. It'll be something to keep your eyes on in the news, and something most certainly that will affect preachers and ministers in their congregation. Okay, that's enough news and analysis for today. Next, we move in our next segment to the question and answer portion of the Preacher Cast. We'll be back after the break.
And we're back. This is that portion of the Preacher Cast where we answer listener questions that come and are emailed in. Just a reminder that if you would like to have your question answered here on the Preacher Cast, you can email me at preacherquestions at gmail.com. That is preacherquestions at gmail.com. Our first question today, a very straightforward one. What would you say to a Christian who rejects the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, I think there are lots of people who are Christians who don't necessarily believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I think, of course, they should. And, of course, when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, what we're talking about is that every word in the Scriptures, the Holy Bible, have been inspired by God and are perfect. And so when we say the Scriptures are inerrant, we are saying there is no error in them. And, of course, even as we confess that, we're doing so with the Apostle Paul, who wrote about this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. That also means, because the Scriptures are inerrant, that they don't contradict one another. Now, of course, there are many who contend there are contradictions in Scripture, but there are not any true contradictions. In fact, most of those perceived contradictions have already been cleared up long ago. Nonetheless, because of the influence of liberal Christian teaching and a host of other uh, worldview influences, many Christians in the 20th century have abandoned what is called the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy. And this is a sad thing. I think that many people, even Christians, have been misinformed. And when they are, they may retain the essence of the Christian faith, but, but when they reject the inerrancy of Scripture, they don't possess any longer the, the bene esse, as we say sometimes, the well-being of the Christian church. And the fact is, there is a serious shortfall in the lives of those who fail to come to grips with the absolute authority of the Word of God. In my experience, when you negotiate inerrancy, you set yourself up at sea and are subject to the winds of every doctrine being blown to and fro. And so is inerrancy indispensable to the health of a Christian? Absolutely. In fact, more than that, inerrancy is a very important doctrine, even though it's ridiculed, attacked, and despised in our day and age. We have to be very careful to study this matter and maintain a high view of biblical authority. I don't want a view of the Bible that's any higher than Jesus's view, and I don't want to have any view of the Bible that's any lower than Jesus's view. I believe the confessional position of all Christians should be that the scriptures of God contained in the 66 books of the Christian Bible are inerrant and infallible. Moving on to our next question in the mailbag, as it were, how many days was Jesus in the grave, two or three? Well, of course, uh, if Jesus was to be in the grave three days and nights, how do we fit those between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? That's what the listener is really asking here. Well, there are several solutions to this problem. Some have suggested that a special Sabbath might have occurred so that Jesus was actually crucified on a Thursday. However, a solution which seems to me to be more convincing is that Jesus was indeed crucified on a Friday, but that the Jewish method of counting days uh, was in light here. It's a different way of counting days than we do. To get a feel for the Jewish method of counting days, we need to turn to the Old Testament first. 
And in Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16, we find Esther exhorting Mordecai to persuade the Jews to fast. And he says this in Esther 4, 16. This is from the New King James Version. He says, Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. Now, this was a fast that was clearly in preparation for Esther's highly risky attempt to see the king. And yet, just two verses later, in Esther 5.1, we read this. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. So here's the thing. If three days and nights were counted in the same way as we count them today, then Esther could not have seen the king until the fourth day. And this is completely analogous to the situation with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew 12, verse 40 says this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Further on in Matthew 28, verse 1, we see this, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And then in Luke 24, verses 5 through 7, we read, Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So going back to our question, if the three days and nights were counted the way we count them, then Jesus would have to have risen on the fourth day. But when you just consider and compare these passages I just read, we can see that in the minds of people in biblical times, the third day is equivalent to the phrase after three days. In fact, the way they counted was this, part of a day would be counted as one day. In fact, what we really see is the first day is the day on which the crucifixion happened. Uh, Friday started at sundown on Thursday. And so we know that Jesus was arrested on day one. He was given this mock trial overnight, and he was crucified the following morning, all of that being on Friday in the crucifixion. Day one comprised of Friday starting at sundown on Thursday, and Friday ending at sundown the next was one day, the day of the crucifixion. Day two, Saturday, started at sundown on Friday. There was night, and then that Saturday ended at sundown. This was day two, and that was the time in which Christ was in the grave. And then day three, Sunday, started at sundown on Saturday, and then Sunday ended at sundown the next, and that was the day of resurrection. That is day three. And what all this means, my explanation, is that Jesus died on Good Friday, that was day one. In total, day one includes the day and the previous night, even though Jesus died in the day. So although only part of Friday was left, that was the first day and night to be counted. Saturday was day two. Jesus rose in the morning of the Sunday. That was day three. Thus, by Jewish counting, we have three days and nights, and yet Jesus rose on the third day. Now, this is the explanation of how it's reckoned that it was three days rather than two. It should not surprise us that a different culture used a different method of counting days. As soon as we adopt this method of counting, 
all the supposed biblical problems with counting the days disappears. So thank you for that question. It's a very good one. One often asks when we study the Easter narratives, how many days was Jesus in the grave? Two or three. By the Jewish reckoning, he was three. We move on to our next listener question now. The question is an important one. Does God give people free will? Well, the answer to this question is no, God doesn't give people free will if you take it to mean that people can choose anything that they want. We don't have true freedom of the will. In fact, what we have is bondage of the will in our natural state. Now, in order to understand this answer, I need to define free will for us, okay? And I would define free will like this. Every human being, every human being has the freedom to choose whatever sin he wants. Now, that's free will, okay? And if you want to understand that in a deeper way, I would recommend the work The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. It's a classic in Protestantism, and it needs to be read to really understand this. But according to this definition, every human being has the freedom to choose whatever sin he wants. That's free will. You can choose whatever sin you want to choose. You just can't choose not to sin. That is, mankind in their natural estate, born in sin, cannot choose not to sin. We need regeneration in order to do that. So yes, there's free will, but there's only free will within the framework of what is called the radical depravity of the human heart and corruption. The one thing you can choose is to get out of there. And for that, you have to cry out for the mercy and grace of God to help you out, which God does by his own sovereign love and power. Now, sinners often think that they have free will, but the Bible defines sinners as being in bondage to sin, okay? And oftentimes, for those who reject the argument about free will here, they don't take seriously enough the bondage which the Bible talks about. It is a bondage to sin so profound that the only thing a person can do in their natural estate, this is outside of Christ, is they can choose which sin to commit. So a very important question and a powerful one that hopefully is helpful. Well, not skirting the controversial here, we turn to our fourth and final question from a listener today. Can a saved person be lost? And I would add here, just to clean up the question a little bit, can a truly saved person be lost? We know that there are people in the world who claim to be saved and who claim to be in Christ, but of course, as Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God. But the question is, can a truly truly saved person, that is a true Christian, regenerate by God, be lost? No. No, they cannot. That is clear. All those whom the Father has given to me, I will truly save in the end. Okay, that's Jesus' words in John 6. But how is it possible that we see people who seem to be saved who do end up leaving the faith and departing? The answer is no, a truly saved person will not be lost, but someone who thinks that they are saved can be lost, okay, which is different. And someone that you think might be saved can be lost. And all of us have stories of people we thought were truly saved who departed from the faith. That is to say that there are those who think they are in the faith that are actually not, and they do depart from the faith, giving the illusion to us that truly saved people can be lost. However, we know from the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, what's sometimes called the perseverance of God's elect, uh, 
this becomes the kind of definitive teaching of the Church, a defining doctrine of the 17th century. It's the pivotal doctrine of the post-Reformation period uh, that, no, the Bible's teaching is very clear on this. Those who are truly saved will be kept and uh, provided for by God's sustaining grace until the end. And this really came home to me powerfully through the study of Scripture, but not only that, through a reading of the book Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I want to, for those who reject this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, to lay out a number of scriptures for you here on record that you can look up in your own time. And I'm going to rattle these off like a laundry list. You'll have to forgive me for that. But for those who are skeptical, you can at least go into the scriptures yourself and read. John 5, 24, John 6, verses 35 through 37, Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, Romans 5, verse 9, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, 1 John 3, verse 9, 1 John 5, verse 4, 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13, Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4, Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, verses 3 through 5. Psalms uh, 37, verse 28, Romans 11, verse 29, Philippians 1, verse 6, John 17, verses 2 and 12, Psalm 20 and verse 6, Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8, Jeremiah 32, verses 39 through 40, John 10, verses 27 through 29, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. And finally, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. I mentioned that these passages have been so helpful for me when I consider the question, can a truly saved person be lost? But I want to tell you about another book which has been so helpful for me, and I remember just how startling it was the first time I read the book titled The Pilgrim's Progress. When you're on the final page of John Bunyan's great work, The Pilgrim's Progress, you've crossed the river, and then all of a sudden the camera lens goes to this hole in the side of the mountain that actually leads straight to hell in this beautiful allegory. I think it's saying that you may convince yourself that you're good enough to go to heaven, but in the end, right at the point of death, you will discover that there is a pathway to hell. Therefore, I think Bunyan was evangelistically trying to say what Peter said in 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, that we need to make our calling and election sure. You need to have a biblical assurance that you are a child of God. And I believe when we look at the visible church today in individual congregations, there are the wheat and tares who are a part of the visible church. Now, the invisible church is comprised of only the elect of God. But when you look out at your Sunday assembly, you might realize that there are wheat, that is, those who truly belong to God, and there are tares, those who are like weeds, who actually do not yet belong to God or who will never belong to God. And so we need to make our calling and election sure, because just because one professes to be saved doesn't necessarily mean so. Can a professor be lost? Yes, if their profession is not true. But can a truly saved and regenerate child of God be lost? No. No, they cannot. Okay, after the break, we're going to turn our attention to the theology segment of the Preacher Cast. This week, my body of study will consider the question, what is 
the church. And then following the theology section, stand by for a book recommendation from me. This week's recommended book is by Joel Beakey and Nick Thompson titled Pastors and Their Critics. We'll be back with the theology question of the week, what is the church? Before we turn our attention to this week's theology segment, let me remind you that you can check out my blog and take advantage of the resources there, including a daily devotional published each morning. You can access my website at matthewdowling.org. That is matthewdowling.org. Let's move on to our theology segment now. Well, since I plan to spend a number of weeks teaching on what the Bible says about the church, it's important that we begin this new series titled, What is the Church? by making sure we're all on the same page regarding this question, what is the church? And the answer is not as simple as you might think when you begin to ponder the question. In fact, if you were to ask people on the street, what is the church? you'd probably hear them say something like this. Oh, it's that building uh, on Sheldon and Arbor Road behind the Kroger. And you know, sometimes we use the word church in that way. We say, I go to the church that is next to Kroger's on Sheldon. But we all know, or at least we should know, that the church is not a building, but rather the people who meet in that building. The building may look like a typical church. Uh, some in our town have a steeple and a cross on the top, or even others look like a kind of industrial building remodeled into a place with an auditorium and classrooms. But we think, when we think about the church, of the church as a building. But you know, in many countries, churches meet in houses, as the early church did. So of course we know, when we begin to think about it, that buildings are not the church. Rather, it's the people who are the church. But you know, dear friends, even if we all agree that the church is the people, and of course it is, we still need to clarify what the church really is, or at the very least, clarify what it's supposed to be as the church. You know, some might think that the church is the place where you go to meet other nice people, kind of like a social club. And hopefully the church generally does have a crowd that's a, a notch above the local bar or some other social place. And of course it usually does. And I'm perfectly fine with the idea that the church meets a social need. I mean, after all, we're more aware of that than ever here in 2020. But really the church is more than that. Now, other people might go to church in the hopes that if they attend church, God will help their lives go better. 
They will improve upon their situation socially or even emotionally. Some people even go to churches because they feel it will help their businesses or the business practices that they oversee. Uh, some people go because they believe God will bless their families. Uh, some guys go to church uh, because it makes their wives happier. And as long as a, a guy's buddies aren't doing something more interesting, a, a fellow might tag along to please his wife. I'm aware of all of these reasons, and even more than that, for why people go to church. But you know, dear friends, amongst those people who claim to be born again, the prevailing American view is that you attend church to worship God and to get something, get spiritual nourishment. You see, it's a lot like going to the theater, but rather it has a spiritual focus. And when you think about it, when you go to the theater, you sit and watch the show that the, the filmmakers and the actors have put together for your enjoyment. You may even see a few of your friends in the lobby before or after the show, and you can stop and you can chat with them. But when you think about the theater, that's really about the extent of your involvement. Well, people think about the church in this same way, too, and there's a bit of a danger in that. The danger is you become a kind of religious consumer, and the thought is, is that the church is meant to provide religious goods. And so some people, they attend the church that provides what best meets their or their own or their family's needs. And some people look at the church like that. And in doing so, some people really begin to see the church like just any other consumer good that they are seeking. The same way as when I go to Aldi's or Walmart to get, to get some foodstuffs or other products for our home. And you know, many churches, knowing that people act this way about the church, uh, cater to this kind of consumer mindset by trying to put on the best show in town every Sunday. And for many ministers, the goal is to attract more and more people to attend their show so that the offerings increase and you can hire more staff to make the show even more attractive to potential consumers. So often in the ministry, pastors and their staff members kind of rack their brains and they will comb through ministry magazines for new ideas on how to get more people to come to their show. And I use that word advisedly. And the idea is that the church, with the most people, in the end, wins. And of course, when you look around American culture right now, we realize that this is the way many people view church. And sadly, the result of this approach has resulted in, in mega churches with a lot of parking lot attendance and a coffee bar that'll rival Starbucks and even professional worship teams that kind of perform with concert level quality often attended by short sermons that kind of speak to the felt needs of the customers and facilities that offer midweek exercise programs along with free babysitting. But you know, that's not really connecting so much with our culture anymore, even though we still see it predominantly in our area. The fact is, even with all of these amenities, churches are continuing to struggle. In fact, many millennial Christians would rather just stay home in their PJs and sip their own gourmet coffee and maybe catch their favorite preacher online. In fact, many millennials today and those who are coming quickly after in Generation Z, they think to themselves, why do I need the church? In fact, many people feel like the church is out of touch with where they are at. 
It tends to be, according to them, full of judgmental old people who are obviously uh, uncomfortable with things like tattoos and body piercings and other lifestyle choices. And so they think to themselves, I'd rather just stay home, maybe surf the web for spiritual input or, or meet with my friends and talk about subjects that really concern me. And one of the struggles today in our country is many people don't see any point in being committed to a local church. And I say all that to say one of my aims in this new teaching series titled, What is the Church? One of my aims is to change your understanding of the church from this kind of prevalent consumer mindset to a biblical view so that you will really commit yourself and your talents and giftedness to the local church that even though it's imperfect is seeking to be what the Bible prescribes. So I want to invite you along on this journey as we think about the question, what is the church? And really in this message this morning, my main point is that to be committed properly to the local church, you must understand biblically what the church is. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to, to take it out as I have here. And we're going to go through some important scriptures, which are going to help us understand more deeply what the Bible has to say about the bride of Christ, this body of believers that God has called together in the world to represent his rule and reign and to nurture and minister to God's people. And what I'd like to do is I want to offer some biblical definitions of the local and universal church. And then I want to cover a handful of the biblical metaphors used about the church in the, uh, uh, in the Bible. And so let's start first with some biblical definitions of the local and universal church. Just to get our heads around very quickly this question, what is the church? Here's a definition I'd like to offer you just to get us thinking about what the church is. The local church is a gathering of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who are committed to meet regularly for worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer, and who help make disciples of all people. Now, I realize, of course, there are uh, simpler definitions of uh, the word church. We could just say it's the people of God. But, you know, in my opinion, oftentimes simple definitions of the church are not comprehensive enough or they tend to miss the mark in other ways. And so I think this definition of the church is a helpful one to begin with. Now, to give you an example of a definition that maybe is a little bit too simple, I want to uh, give you an example from a systematic theologian named Wayne Grudem. And he writes this in his systematic theology on page 853. He gives us a succinct definition by telling us, the church is the community of all true believers for all time. Now, this is not a bad definition. In fact, it's pretty good. It's just a little bit too simple. Uh, while this definition does recognize that the Greek word for church, ekklesia, which literally means assembly, even though it's usually translated church in our Bibles, while this definition recognizes that ekklesia is used of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, 
it really fails to recognize the distinct nature of the church as beginning on the day of Pentecost. You see, it's just a little too simple. And the church that began on the day of Pentecost, consisting of all who were under the headship of Jesus Christ, having been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the one body of Christ, well, that's not really captured in this definition by Dr. Grudem. So I begin with a bigger definition of the church to help us begin to think about what the church really is. Now, don't misunderstand me as I say this and I interact with Dr. Grudem's definition. While I agree that God has always had a community of true believers, we need to understand that there really is a distinct difference between the Old Testament people of God and what is known as the New Testament church, which is the body of Christ. Let me give you another example of a definition which I think does a little bit better job of, of distinguishing some of these important subtleties in the definition of church. For example, Dr. James Boyce in his uh, magnificent work, God in History, on page 63 points out this. He says, the church has characteristics that cannot rightly be applied to the Old Testament assembly and which therefore set it off as something new. The church first is founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, the church is called into being by the Holy Spirit and then he writes, third, the church is to contain people of all races who thereby become one new people in the sight of God. You see how Dr. Boyce, he distinguishes between the Old Testament assembly and the New Testament church under the banner of Christ. Let's consider another definition which teases out this distinction and which does a little bit better job than Dr. Grudem has done in defining the church. Max Stiles, who's a, a minister and commentator, I believe is on target when he writes in an article by Nine Marks called Nine Marks of a Healthy Parachurch Ministry, this definition of the church. He says, the church is the God-ordained local assembly of believers who have committed themselves to each other. They gather regularly, they teach the word, they celebrate communion or Lord's Supper and baptism, they discipline their members, that is, they disciple them. Uh, they establish a biblical structure of leadership, a plurality of elders, we would add. They pray and give together. Certainly the church, he says, may do more, but it is not less than this. I would say to Mr. Stiles' definition, amen. That's a quite uh, helpful insight into what the church is. And it's not so simple a definition that we miss some important things. Now, having said that, let's go back to my definition. And I want to note first that the local church, notice, is a gathering of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is a really essential component of what I believe the Bible defines the church as. What this means is that the church consists of those who meet together because they believe the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have entrusted their very lives to the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And what that means is every true member and believer of the local church is one who believes some very important things. For example, they believe that they are sinners who deserve God's righteous judgment. 
They also believe that God sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, to pay the penalty of death that I deserve. They are also a group of believers who believe God promises that all who believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins and was raised from the dead receive forgiveness of all their sins and eternal life as a free gift. And in terms of the salvation of the members of the local church, they know that genuine saving faith includes turning from my sins and growing in obedience to the commandments given by Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. You see, it is this belief in the gospel that is at the core of true local churches. That's why I've included it in the definition uh, which defines or at least answers the question, what is the church? But turning again to the definition I've offered, we notice something else. We notice that those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, notice, are committed to meeting regularly for worship, for teaching, for fellowship, and prayer. Why is that a part of my definition of the church? It's because that's how the church is described in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In that passage, it is reported of the early church that the church they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Colossians 3.16, Paul instructs the church in this way. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, it's these kind of texts and others which spell out the essential activities of the church when we gather each Lord's Day. That's why I've also included these activities in the definition for what the church is. Now, turning once more to the definition I've offered you, also from my definition we see that the local church is a gathering of those who help make disciples of all people. Now, that should resonate with you just a little bit or seem familiar because this comes straight from the Great Commission that the Lord gave us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. In those verses, Jesus said this, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, we know that this great commission that Jesus gave was not just for the apostles or specifically now for missionaries who are called to go out to foreign cultures. The fact is, the Great Commission is the mission of the church, which means every Christian should be involved in the process of making disciples. Now, you may not know that language, disciples, but really a disciple is simply this. It is an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. And we are to do that both locally and globally as we support missions. And of course, what this means is this includes things like sharing the gospel with those outside of Christ or helping other believers grow in Christ and of course being informed and committed to the cause of Christ worldwide. And so this is a helpful way, I think, of defining the church because it pulls some of this richness in as we begin to think about what the church is.
Now, let's move on just a little bit more, and it's important to note as we do so that the Bible never uses the word church to refer to the building where God's people met. But almost always the church is used to describe the cities where they met. For example, we hear phrases in the Bible like the church in Jerusalem, or in Philippi, or Corinth, or Rome, etc. And in many cases, there were probably too many believers together in just one location each Sunday. And so we know in the ancient world, people met in numerous houses throughout the city. And probably each house church had at least one pastor or elder who was responsible there for shepherding and for oversight of the people and teaching that flock. But here's the really interesting thing that we notice in the New Testament. The church in a given city, for example, whether it was in Rome or Jerusalem, the church was viewed, notice, as one local church governed by a plurality of elders. It's really interesting when you think about the church in that way. Uh, Minister Watchman Nee put it this way in his book, The Normal Christian Church Life, on page 59. He said, a local church is a church which comprises all the children of God in a given locality. Now, to be honest with you, with all of the many uh, uh, churches in every city, I don't know how to recover this kind of idea of the church as a reality. But notice, the overall point is, the local church is a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ, existing under his lordship, and committed to one another to help fulfill his saving purposes. Now, I'd like to move on just a little bit further in the understanding of what the church is by noting that the universal church consists of all believers worldwide whom Christ has saved from the day of Pentecost until the point in the future when he returns. Now, let's flesh this out just a little bit and let's think about what this means as we think of ourselves as a part of the larger universal church of Christ in the world. And to begin thinking about this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. After describing God's people at Mount Sinai, the author of Hebrews, drawing on the rich tradition of the Old Testament, he draws this contrast in Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. He says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, I want to draw attention to what the Hebrews author is doing as it talks about these local believers that he was writing to belonging to the larger church universal. We see the author was trying to impress on these Jewish Christians who were tempted to return to Judaism. He was trying to impress on them the superiority over uh, or of the superiority of the church over the old covenant people of God. And what he tells us is really important for us to understand. We are a part of this great company of all people everywhere who have believed in Jesus and the power of his shed blood. 
Now, while in one sense that does include Old Testament believers who were looking forward to the, 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 the coming of Christ, in another sense, there is a contrast between them and us in that we are actually members of his worldwide body, the church. And that's a very important thing to remember. Each Sunday when we gather for the gathered worship of the church, we are in spiritual communion with all true believers around the planet Earth. And it's a really amazing thing to think of as we answer the question, what is the church? Now, you have no doubt had the same experience, maybe at some point that I have had, where you have met someone from another country who's very different culturally than you are. In fact, they may only speak broken English, but when you discover that that person, he or she is a believer in Jesus Christ, there is an instant bond of fellowship. And although you both normally meet with believers in very different places around the globe, and maybe your church meetings may look very different than theirs, you are both members of the one universal body of Christ. That's why when we invite Isaac and, and Melika Banda to come here and share about what's happening in Malawi, there's very much about what they're doing and their work there that is familiar to us because we have this bond because we're a part of the universal body of Christ. Now, that breaks down just a little bit of the definition of what the church is, and it begins to fire our imaginations for thinking about the church. But to further help understand what the church is, what I'd like to do now is to look at a few biblical metaphors for the church, right? Now, we need to notice there are literally dozens in the New Testament of metaphors describing the church. But I really pared it down to just a handful. And uh, even at that, I'm only going to comment very briefly on them. But here's the thing, and this brings us to our second major point of the lesson today. There are many biblical metaphors that help us understand what the church is. And so it's important to think about these metaphors because it gives us a sense of what we are as the church. And the first metaphor I want to talk about is the church as the body of Christ, the head, okay? And this is perhaps the most familiar description of the church. In fact, Paul uses it extensively in 1 Corinthians 12 to make the point that all believers are members of the one body in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, these words. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now notice here, he doesn't mention in that chapter that Christ is the head of the body because his aim is to emphasize really both the unity and the diversity of the earthly church. But of course, don't miss the point here. Just as in a human body, there are many members, but each has a different function, so in the body of Christ, right? Each member has a spiritual gift to be used for the overall good of the body under the headship of Christ, meaning we are different and yet we are one body. That's why this metaphor is such a crucial one for really beginning to understand the organic nature of what you are a part of in the church of Jesus Christ. This church, this body of believers is much more than a social club, right? There is a unity in this family that transcends almost every unity on the planet Earth.
Now, going along with the point that the church is Christ's body, is the truth that Christ and the church make up what's called in the Bible the one new man? Why is that metaphor being used to describe the church? Well, to understand it, we need to go back to the beginning of time and the first man, Adam, who fell into sin. And what this phrase, the one new man, the body of Christ is referring to, is what Adam, the old man, lost. You see, Christ, who's described as the new man in the Bible, recovered this thing that was lost. And while most modern translations convey an individual sense to the new man, for example, in the New American Standard, or the ESV, or the NIV, they refer to the new self, Paul's point is that the new man is a corporate body, meaning, as he says in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11, that Christ and the church is this new man. Do you see the organic unity that he's trying to get across to us? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11. He says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self, the old man, with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal, notice, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, we are a part of this organic unity because of our union with Christ, which gives us, notice, union with each other. And then, of course, just to note one more time that Christ is the head of his body, the church. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Paul writes that he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him as head or charge over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I keep laboring this point because among the many practical applications of the doctrine of the church taught by the Bible is that each member of Christ's body must be in submission to Christ as the head of the church and really in a complementary relationship with other members of the body. We are a family of God under the reign and rule of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as we use this metaphor of the body with Christ as the head, we automatically realize the most important characteristic of bodies is that they are living. And you know, while bodies are, are highly organized, the organization is useless if there is no life, right? And so the church is the organic living body of Christ. And its members must be alive spiritually through the new birth. That's why when we talk about joining the church of Christ, when we talk about becoming a part of the body of Christ, we always and ever begin with the discussion about regeneration. You cannot enter the kingdom of God or be a part of the church without being born again. Well, this brings us to another metaphor for the church. Again, answering the question, what is the church? And this second metaphor tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, Paul presents this image or metaphor in his discussion of the roles of husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. 
And the mistake we could make about this passage is to think that he's limiting his discussion to just marriage. But that's not what he's doing. In fact, he makes that clear in Ephesians 5, verse 32. He says this in that verse. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And otherwise, uh, in other words, if you haven't ever realized this, the picture of a marriage between one woman and one man actually points to the reality of the cosmic spiritual relationship between Jesus and the church. In fact, the Apostle John presents the same imagery in the book of Revelation, where the church, we're told, is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the main application of this metaphor is that we are able to relate to Christ in love, just the same way a bride relates to her husband, and that we are to thrive in the knowledge that he loves us and he chose us, his elect people, to be his bride. Well, let's move to our third metaphor to describe the church, or at least as it's described in the Bible, where we're told the church is the family or the household of God. In Ephesians 2.19, the Apostle Paul states this, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. This family imagery is very special to me. But you know, this image is also seen in the many places where God is called, notice, our Father. And often we are called brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I know that language seems a bit antiquated. If I were to call you brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, you'd think, what is that all about? Well, that's actually a, a biblical reference to the family aspect of the household of God. The fact is, the Bible teaches us that we are God's children through the new birth but we're also God's children through adoption. And so if you are in Christ, you are my brother or my sister, and I am your brother all the same. Well, in addition to assuring us of God's fatherly love and care for us, this truth about the church, it affects our mindset towards the body of Christ. You know, if the church is just a Sunday program that you attend, then you go for what you can get out of it. But here's the thing. According to this metaphor, if the church is the family of God, which the Bible says it is, then you're a member with your brothers and sisters. And you know, families, families are a special thing. The fact is families gather for fundamentally different reasons than just audiences do. I mean, families get together for relationships because of the, the common family bond. And family members, well, they don't threaten to go join another family if there are conflicts or if the family gatherings aren't meeting their needs. The fact is the family bond keeps them together so that they work out their differences in love. And that at the very least needs to be acknowledged. That's what should happen in Christian families. And it certainly is what should happen in the family of God. So this household of God family metaphor for the church is a very important one. And it helps us evaluate how we feel and how we think about the family that is the church. Well, the fourth metaphor that I'd like to turn to is the church as what's called the temple of God. Again, returning to the church, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 21 through 22, these words. He says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into, notice, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
Now, what does this mean practically, that the church is the temple of God? Well, stick with me on this, because this is kind of amazing. In one sense, it means a believer's body is individually a temple of God. We have the Holy Spirit within us if we are a true follower of Christ. But in another sense, the entire church is God's temple, all of the congregated body. This means that he dwells in our midst and thus we must be holy in all our behavior. It's an amazing thing to think about our own lives and our own organic body of Christ, the church, as the temple of God. It's something that the Old Testament saints could never have dreamed of. Well, this brings us fifthly to our next metaphor, and that is that the church is the flock of God, the flock of God. And here's kind of a, a, a metaphor from animal husbandry. You might remember in the book of Acts when Paul challenged the Ephesians el Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Here we see that imagery, right? The church is a flock of sheep following the good shepherd and the lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world under the oversight of their shepherds and elders. In 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter commands the elders there. He says, shepherding or shepherd, excuse me, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This means that the church belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to any minister or elder. And that church leaders, it says they are shepherds. They're responsible to the Lord to care for his flock. So this, this image, this metaphor from, from agriculture and animal husbandry is a really beautiful one. It tells us that we are under authority and we are to follow uh, our shepherds as they follow the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our next metaphor, the fact that the church is called the pillar and the support of the truth. Listen to Paul's words to his uh, young minister protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul writes, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice the pillar and the support of the truth. Paul mentions the metaphor of the church as the household of the living God, but then he adds something really special. He adds that the church upholds and supports the truth. You know, this is a really important metaphor because in this day of widespread departure from the truth of God's word, the church must stand firm in proclaiming and practicing the truth. In fact, one of the main tasks of elders, at least as Paul defines it in Titus 1 verse 9, is that they must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. These are Paul's words in Titus 1 verse 9 in his defining of the characteristics of an elder. And then this brings us lastly to the church which is called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And you know, the relationship between the church and God's kingdom 
It's a very complicated and rich one. The fact is many books have been written on it. If you're a reader, and I know there's a, a handful of you who are always wanting to know, is there a good title that I could think about this? One of the best out there was written by a, a man named George Ladd, George Ladd, L-A-D-D. -D. And the book is called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a very helpful book that explores the relationship between the church and God's kingdom. But God's word defines it for us, and so we can begin to think about this relationship or this metaphor. For example, in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this. It says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, notice, of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then again, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, Paul states his aim there. He says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into notice his own kingdom and glory. You see, what the Bible teaches again and again is that God's kingdom, it is broken into the world through the church. But it kind of is awaiting a completed form when Christ returns and rules over all of the earth. And so this kingdom breaking out looks like the church, right? God is here. He's rescuing former atheists. He's rescuing sinners and those who used to be uh, enslaved to sin. And he's bringing them up and he's polishing them up and sanctifying them and preparing them for the return of their master. And here's the thing. The practical application for us is that in the church, we live under the rule of Jesus Christ, our King. The fact is, at the end of the day, we serve his purposes and not our own. And we again and again are called to proclaim Jesus's rightful lordship to other people around us. And, and what we do through our own example, our own life as salt and light, our own proclamation of the gospel about the lordship of Jesus, is we seek to invite and to bring others into submission to the rule of Jesus Christ. The fact is, we don't make up our own ideas about the word, what the, the church should be, but rather the Bible tells us we are to submit to the teaching that he has given us about the church in his word. And that's why we're starting out this new series on the church in this way, defining the question, what is the church? Now, as we conclude, the main thing that I want you to see in this lesson is that the church is not a place you attend for spiritual input, maybe two or three times a month if you don't have anything better to do. We're not here to provide the best show in town for your spiritual enjoyment. If you've trusted in Christ truly, the fact is the Bible says you're organically joined to other family members so that you're one body with them under the head who is Jesus, okay? And what that tells me about you is that you are the church. You're a member of the family of God. You're related to other family members with a God-given ministry to fulfill. God has given you a purpose. And you know what this means is that the idea that a Christian could live his or her independent spiritual life separate from the life of a local church, it's absolutely foreign to the New Testament. There's no idea like this in the Bible. What the Bible teaches and what the Bible expects of each of us who are born-again Christians is that God wants every part of the body to work together, as Paul says, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, Ephesians 4.16.
So thank you for joining me for this first lesson in our series, What is the Church? And lesson one has been titled, What is the Church? I pray that you will go out and be the church this week. And may God bless you as you do so. Well, I hope that theology teaching was helpful for you as you consider what is the Church. I suspect that in 2020, the year this podcast is being recorded, that it's an important opportunity to return to some fundamental ecclesiological teaching on the Church, and each week, Lord willing, we'll consider a different aspect of this Church seminar, and I hope that it's helpful for you, dear preacher. Well, finally, on the Preacher Cast this week, I want to take a look at a very important book for ministry that I think could be the go-to book whenever you, dear pastor, preacher, encounter uh, critics in your ministry. And this is a book from Dr. Joel Beakey and Nick Thompson titled Pastors and Their Critics, A A Guide to Coping with Criticism in the Ministry. This is put out by PNR Publishing and was published just this year. Just a reminder that Dr. Joel Beakey is the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, where he serves as a professor of systematic theology and homiletics. He received his Ph.D. from Westminster Theological Seminary, and his co-author, Nick Thompson, is a graduate of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's pursuing ordination in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There are several very helpful books on pastoral criticism, another one by Brian Croft, which is essential reading. But you know, if you've been in ministry for any amount of time, you're going to understand immediately the importance of a book on how to deal with criticism in the ministry. And um, this is really a book that tells you in theological but also very practical ways some of the best ways to respond to and deal with criticism in the ministry. Um, We see a variety of topics in this little book that are going to be so helpful for you. Uh, We're going to learn from this book how to uh, deal with criticism, the ways in which we take criticism personally, uh, and the ways in which the Lord has used criticism to shape his ministers over time. Uh, The book teaches how to deal with discouraging thoughts in the ministry. We learn how to take our thoughts captive. Uh, We learn how to use the Pauline model, kind of sandwiching criticism when we have to give it to others between uh, praise and upbuilding. The book talks about the importance of being humble and not defensive, and how to look to the Jesus model in the midst of criticism to handle it well. Uh, It gives you very practical information on some of the best ways to respond to criticism as a ministry leader, and how ministry leaders, most importantly, can learn not to take criticism to heart, but to take it instead to the Lord. The book is very helpful for established pastors and for seminary students. In fact, there's a chapter written by Nick Thompson giving advice to seminary students as they prepare for a life of ministry and how to prepare their hearts for criticism. And... um, 
this is uh, an important work for uh, the working uh, pastor. And so I want to recommend it to you. Again, the book is titled Pastors and Their Critics, A Guide to Coping with Criticism in the Ministry. This is from PNR Publishing, published this year. Okay, dear friends, that's going to be a wrap for this week's edition of the Preacher Cast. My name is Matthew Dowling. It's been a pleasure to be your host for the Preacher Cast today. The Preacher Cast is a discussion of Christianity, the Church, and life in Christ. And until next time, dear friends, may God bless you. <laughs>